listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to PTCE's Pharmacy Connect, a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. And now, here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri. PTCE, Pharmacy Connect listeners. Hey, you know what's better than having a pharmacist that you can talk to about different treatments, different things that are happening that innovation in pharmacy and today anemia, specifically treatment advancements in anemia in chronic kidney disease. What could be better than that? Talking to two pharmacists that are focused on this amazing content and education designed by pharmacists for pharmacists. We're so excited today. We're going to be talking about um, anemia, and this is new for me in chronic kidney disease, meaning your kidneys are damaged. Uh, They can't filter blood the way that they should. This damage can cause waste and fluid to build up in your body. CKD can also cause other health problems. I'm excited to introduce, we have two pharmacists, Dr. Jessica Kerr, professor and clinical pharmacy specialist at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville School of Pharmacy in Illinois, and Dr. Joanna Hudson, who is a tenured professor in the Department of Clinical Pharmacy and Translational Science in the Department of Medicine at the University of Tennessee. So we are going to dig into this content, but today's special because we're going to kick this over to Dr. Jessica Kerr to really dive into uh, the content. The objectives of this are really to update the advancements in our development of HIF, HIF, pH inhibitors for anemia in chronic kidney disease and express the role of our pharmacists in managing anemia in, in chronic kidney disease through early detection and coordination of care. Dr. Jessica, I'm so excited that you're here and I want to turn over the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast to you today. Great. Thanks so much, Todd. You know, as a practicing um primary care pharmacists working with patients who have chronic disease states that also have chronic kidney disease, there's a lot that can be done in this space to optimize patient therapy to address the anemia simply due to the CKD. We do have options, um, and now our medicine bag is just opening up even wider with possible emerging therapies that can address some of the barriers that perhaps Dr. Hudson and myself have seen um, in the past. So I'm really excited to bring Dr. Hudson on board to talk about those emerging uh, therapies, but also expanding roles that pharmacists can have in anemia management through early detection, screening, and coordination of care. Uh, So, Dr. Hudson, I hope that you're there and we're wanting to thank you for joining us today. Can you just provide the audience that's listening with us a bit more about your background and passion for this topic? Sure. Well, thanks, Dr. Kier. It's certainly a pleasure to be here. Um, I am a pharmacist and someone who specializes in chronic kidney disease. I work with both patients in the early phases of kidney disease, as I'm sure you do in your practice with diabetes and I also work with dialysis patients. So anemia is certainly a secondary complication that we manage on a regular basis. And while we're having this discussion today about this prevalent secondary complication, you know, one of the reasons we're doing that 
is because chronic kidney disease is so prevalent. We're seeing more and more individuals with this disease state. So it's great to bring attention to it. And I'm glad we're doing this podcast today. Yeah, so let's start off first with just giving a brief overview of chronic um, chronic kidney disease, kind of sharing with us more about CKD and how many people in the U.S. it actually affects. So chronic kidney disease, a lot of people think of it as really an end-stage type of disease, but it happens you know, relatively early in the sense of patients at risk. It's the gradual loss of kidney function, and it results from the two leading causes in the U.S., which are diabetes and hypertension. There are many other causes, but those are clearly the most prevalent uh, reasons that patients develop kidney damage. It can progress, and patients lose the ability to regulate fluids as well as solutes. Um, So basically, all these different substances build up, and over time, as a patient gets down to a glomerular filtration rate of less than 15, they become dialysis dependent. So we do everything we can to avoid that. But unfortunately, there's about 37 million people in the U.S., or about 15% of the population, with chronic kidney disease. More common in older individuals, but certainly across the board, we're seeing this uh, disease happen at, at any different age. Yeah, you know, those numbers are pretty astonishing when you think about how much press other less prevalent disease states get and how little we actually hear about CKD in, you know, layperson media or education. I guess I'm also wondering with how common anemia is in individuals with CKD and how does anemia affect outcomes in those populations? So anemia is quite prevalent in an individual with chronic kidney disease, and it's actually twice as prevalent in CKD patients compared to the general population. And unfortunately, it becomes worse as patients progress. So we have these different stages of chronic kidney disease that are related to the glomerular filtration rate, as well as other markers of kidney damage. But a patient with a glomerular filtration rate less than 50% of normal, or what we would call a stage three chronic kidney disease patient, is at higher risk of anemia, of developing anemia. And that certainly progresses as they go on to need dialysis if their disease is not um, prevented or progression of kidney disease is not prevented. Now, unfortunately, with that disease is a high burden to the patient. Quality of life decreases. So as a patient's hemoglobin, which is our measure of anemia um, and how we diagnose and track really that disease state in terms of management, the worse the hemoglobin, the worse their quality of life in terms of how they feel. There's an association with left ventricular hypertrophy, so the cardiovascular complications become more prevalent, and certainly the economic burden. So there's a yearly cost is more than threefold greater in patients with chronic kidney disease and anemia compared to those without. It's also associated with increased hospitalizations and hospital length of stay. And unfortunately, if patients are not managed early enough, they have a higher need for red blood cell transfusions. And that's ultimately what we want to prevent because we know transfusions are associated with a lot of negative outcomes themselves from adverse effects, as well as setting patients up for maybe rejecting an organ if they are able to get a kidney transplant down the road. So lots of of consequences as we would think about it with anemia. And, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I believe most health, healthcare professionals would say that learning the renal system and physiology and pathophysiology of the renal, uh, renal disease itself was one of the most complex material to truly understand while you're kind of in that early stage of, of a healthcare provider or even a student. However, there, there are some fascinating aspects of what the kidneys do and how they are codependent on many other systems of the body. 
Can you share with us some basics of how anemia occurs in patients with advanced kidney disease that we can encompass our discussion around today? Sure. So, you know, a lot of people out there that may be listening that, that know about anemia of chronic kidney disease will think about erythropoietin. That's the hormone that's made in response to low oxygen levels. And while we used to think, well, let's just replace erythropoietin, it's not quite as simple as that. There's been a lot of research and information that has come out about hypoxia-inducible factor. This is a transcription factor that responds to reduced oxygen levels in tissue by activating gene expression. So not to get into too much of the nitty-gritty, but there's these HIF subunits that exist in different forms. There's a alpha and, and beta subunits. And suffice it to say that one of those subunits binds to what we call hypoxia response elements. Uh, these are DNA elements that induce target gene expression. And with regard to anemia of chronic kidney disease, when HIF, um, the hypoxia-inducible factor, or HIF, directly activates renal and hepatic erythropoietic genes, results, this results in stimulation for erythropoietin production. So while erythropoietin is important, there are other pathways and certain substances along the way that are responsible for inducing its production. So now when we have HIF, um, we know that it lowers hepcidin, uh, which is responsible for decreased iron absorption and iron distribution for red blood cell production, and increases transferrin. We know that HIF is degraded by um, the propyl hydroxylase, or HIF-PH inhibitors, as we call them, under normal um, oxygen conditions. So this pathway is, is very important to understanding kind of the new drug therapies that, that are out there. Yeah, and then how important is iron in anemia of CKD, and how does hepcidin affect iron? So iron is what I always tell my students is part of the recipe of making a red blood cell. It's an important cofactor in red blood cell production. And it's really when we have iron deficiency, that's considered the leading cause of resistance to treatment with anemia. So historically, if we think about treatment approaches for anemia, we're, we're giving patients erythropoietin or replacing the hormone. We refer to this as erythropoietin stimulating agents that we would give them. If they're iron deficient, then it doesn't matter how much erythropoietin we give them, they're still going to have anemia. And in this case, it may be iron deficient anemia, you know, or anemia related to iron deficiency, but we know that's a key factor for resistance. The other thing that comes into play, and I mentioned this just very briefly earlier, hepcidin is a key hormone, it's made by the liver that regulates iron homeostasis. So when it's elevated, such as in conditions of inflammation, and it's been found to be elevated in patients with kidney disease, it inhibits iron transport out of storage and into the circulation and reduces iron absorption. So it certainly worsens the problem of anemia. We know these levels being increased in advanced uh, chronic kidney disease and in inflammation are key factors uh, that cause this problem. So one of the goals typically is lowering hepcidin um, and we'll get into that somewhat with the, the HIF, HIF activation, and that's one reason it's thought to be beneficial. So I would imagine working um, as you do in the nephrology department in your practice, it, it may be very different than what I see, but in a primary care setting, I see a lot of challenges when working with patients or healthcare providers for the management of anemia and CKD. What are some challenges with management of anemia and CKD? Well, first and foremost, one of the big problems that we have is, is identifying patients with chronic kidney disease. 
Unfortunately, there are many patients out there who are at risk and may not have screening for the disease itself. So thing one is getting them into the system to, to be diagnosed and hopefully measures to delay CKD progression can be implemented. But in addition to that, the workup for some of these secondary complications, which includes anemia, needs to be done. So that's what I consider really one of the biggest challenges is the delay in diagnosis and then certainly treatment that would come with the diagnosis. There's also differences in um, interpretation of treatment initiation and targets by practitioners. In other words, what is the hemoglobin level at which we should start therapy with an ESA, erythropoietin stimulating agent, or what are the um, goal iron indices that would trigger someone to give either oral or IV iron therapies? So there's a lot of discussion with regard to that in terms of, of those goals, and I think that's an important factor. If we also think about some of the safety data and negative outcomes, um, that's been associated clearly with targeting a higher hemoglobin. So there's a lot of information out there about ESAs being associated with cardiovascular outcomes, worse cardiovascular outcomes when targeting a hemoglobin above 11. And that certainly has gotten a lot of attention over time. And then we know that the targets for hemoglobin because of these studies that show higher risk of cardiovascular events and negative outcomes when we target higher hemoglobins, the uh, target based on guidelines available in the nephrology world, the kidney disease improving global outcomes guidelines, as well as from the FDA, have lowered hemoglobin targets. So according to FDA labeling, the target hemoglobin with treatment is about 10 to 11 in somebody with kidney failure or end-stage kidney disease. So there's a lot surrounding the, the targets um, with hemoglobin in terms of what we're trying to achieve with our treatments. Yeah, I think that's also, you know, really good when you bring up those those targets um, from a standpoint of patients understanding what targets are um, versus what normal um, levels may may be, um, which kind of brings us back to where and how we always utilize guidelines that can help assist in the management of, of any disease state, um, but in particular anemia and chronic disease um, what particular treatment guidelines are commonly used for anemia in CKD and what have been some of those challenges with those current guidelines? So the guidelines that we have historically used, there's a couple of sets. One is the uh, KDOKI, Kidney Disease Outcome Quality Initiative, and those are older U.S.-based guidelines. And then more recently, the KDIGO, Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcome Guidelines. So the last guidelines that came out for anemia with KDIGO were in 2012. Now, there have been some uh, controversy conferences that relate to treatment goals and newer agents that are available, um, and those have been published. But there's actually um, an initiative now to update the guidelines. So we kind of are staying tuned for the KDIGO updates to the uh, treatment guidelines as well. So the challenges are trying to incorporate some of these controversies that we have that we've alluded to, you know, related to hemoglobin targets, related to which agents we should be using, how do we incorporate iron therapy, and at what point in terms of the whole anemia management spectrum. So those are all the challenges that are related to this. And anyone interested in, in learning more about that can, can look at those controversy uh, publications that are out there from the, the recent meetings that have occurred and certainly look out for the, the update with the KDGO guidelines. What are existing therapies supported by the guidelines and how do they help manage those disease states? 
So the existing therapies really relate to the problems that we talk about with regard to, to anemia, and that is iron supplementation. So we know that iron deficiency is the leading cause of resistance to treatment with an ESA. So the guidelines would talk about the recommended therapies. There's oral agents as well as IV agents uh, used for iron supplementation. And the goal there really is to try to minimize ESA use because of the risks associated with using ESAs, and particularly when the hemoglobin targets are above 11. So the other part of the guidelines relates to our goal iron indices. And so when we're monitoring patients and looking at their iron status, a couple of things we look at, the transparent saturation, which gives us an idea of iron immediately available for use, and that can be incorporated into the red cell, and also serum ferritin, which is a surrogate marker for iron storage. So those targets are an important part of you know, the recommendations that are out there. And currently with KDGO, the target transparent saturation is 30%, and the target ferritin is 500. And the caveat there is this is when the goal is to reduce ESA use, right? Trying to, to maximize the hemoglobin without increasing the dose of an ESA or perhaps without even starting it. So those are important targets there. Um, the ESAs themselves, those are part of our existing therapies. So generally, they're recommended to uh, when the hemoglobin is less than 10 and there's an increased likelihood of needing a transfusion. You know, I alluded to that before. We try to avoid all these patients getting blood transfusions because of the risks associated with that. Uh, the goal hemoglobin, you know, another thing that we've uh, mentioned before, it's approximately 10 in the non-dialysis CKD patients and roughly 10 to 11 based on FDA guidelines. KDGO gives a little bit higher recommendation of up to 11 and a half, um, and that's in patients with kidney failure on dialysis. But the key message there is not targeting a normal hemoglobin due to cardiovascular and, and stroke risk from previous studies that had those higher targets. And again, red blood trans cell transfusions are part of the guidelines, but the overall consensus and goal there is to try to minimize the number of patients and the number of red blood cell transfusions that are required. Yeah, I mean, definitely the ESAs aren't aren't put on on, on therapy as as quickly as what you know one might think they're they, that they would be recommended or that we should even consider them because of the risks that you have explained. Can you talk a little bit about some of the shared decision conversations that are conducted with the healthcare team or the patients um, during this particular point in therapy? In terms of their, their risks of, of the target hemoglobin, is that what you're alluding to? Yes, yeah. Sure. So, you know, this is something, it's not just a matter of a, a prescriber or healthcare provider saying, oh, this patient has a low hemoglobin, let's start them on an ESA and let's target this particular hemoglobin. You know, there should be a discussion with the patient in terms of, you know, their quality of life, you know, how much that is affected, explaining to them some of the risks associated with ESAs. Um, you know, this used to fall under uh, the, the REMS program, that risk strat uh, stratification program, um, but it, it no longer falls under that, but we still have the you know obligation essentially to discuss with patients the risk versus benefit like we would a lot of therapies but here we're really focused on balancing quality of life with some of the negative outcomes associated with ESAs so that is part of the the shared discussion and the patient involvement and all the of the team should be involved in in that discussion uh, with the patient Okay. And then let's talk about the new um, drug class of the hypoxia um, inducible factor proteol 
hydroxylase inhibitors or the HIF pH inhibitors. Um, the drug class seems like it addresses an unmet need in the treatment of CKD. So share with us what HIF pH inhibitors are and how they work and what unmet needs could they address. Sure. So I know that's a mouthful. So the HIF pH inhibitors are essentially inhibiting the uh, prolohydroxylase. And prolohydroxylase actually breaks down um, hypoxia-inducible factor. So what these inhibitors do by preventing that enzyme from breaking down HIF is they mimic hypoxic conditions to stabilize HIF. This allows for gene, gene transcription to occur. And what that essentially means is that's an increase in erythropoietin production and a reduction in hepcidin, right? Two things that we want to do. We want to allow the patient to make erythropoietin, and there are cells that still are able to do so if they have the right uh, stimulus, and then also reduce hepcidin, which as we mentioned before, can essentially block iron absorption and, and transport. So those are two potential benefits of that. Um, so in allowing that endogenous production of erythropoietin and improved iron regulation to occur has the potential to reduce the use of ESAs, our current therapy that we have that's approved for patients with anemia of chronic kidney disease, and then also to improve iron utilization. So that's really the claim to fame of these. And it's you know really exciting to think about the potential for these therapies uh, to be out there and, and available. Yeah, I could definitely see by increasing the EPO production and the reduction in the hepcidin that that could be met with a lot of excitement from your arena for sure. Um, with what the emerging drugs that we currently have in that class, if you could kind of go through, I think there's maybe six of them that are pipeline or within the FDA, and then we'll kind of narrow it down with those that have actually started through the process of the FDA. Sure. So the ones that um, I know we're going to focus on are the ones that have been, you know, received with more attention here in the U.S. So Roxadustat, Vidadustat, and Deprodustat are the three that really have gotten attention in the, in the U.S.-based um, market here. The other ones, there's a um, Melidustat, um, and Aradustat, and Dazidustat, but those three are actually being studied as well, but really more outside of this country and haven't kind of hit uh, the ground running with regard to approval in the U.S. So then let's just focus, like you said, on the Rexadjustat, the Vadjustat, and as well as the um, Deprodustat, and let us see, talk to us about their safety and efficacy and how they've been addressed in clinical trials. Sure. So these three agents, um, and if we kind of go in order of how they went up for FDA approval, Rexadjustat was first. And this is an agent that if we look at it, the studies that have been done, and they're all named after mountain ranges, by the way, but they've been done in what we refer to as the non-dialysis CKD patients, as well as dialysis patients. So those requiring renal replacement therapy chronically. So those studies are all kind of considered the, the Alpine series, if we think of them that way. And they've been conducted in patients who are both ESA naive, so have not received ESA therapy prior, also are who have received an ESA and may be converted to um, the Roxadustat in this particular case. So the studies are interesting in the sense that a lot of these, uh, when we look at them, they're, they're certainly global programs, but they varied in terms of the target hemoglobin, uh, the actual comparator agent when somebody has been on an ESA or when the population studied has been on an ESA, um, and then the hemoglobin goals. So a lot of variation across the board in terms of those studies. 
But in general, if we look at the, the outcome data for those, overall non-inferiority compared to an ESA with regard to efficacy, and then depending on how you look at the data, whether it's from an individual study or from pooled data, that's where you get some variation in safety. The individual studies, we're not necessarily uh, looking at what we call the MACE outcomes, those main um, you know, cardio cardiovascular outcomes, but they were looking at safety in general compared to um, either the comparator or the placebo and really found no difference. The pooled data though, in general found non-inferiority for those MACE outcomes. So this is what led to submission to the FDA uh, for approval. That agent did not receive approval and actually underwent more scrutiny from the Cardiovascular and Renal Advisory Committee um, because one of the main things that we think about with a lot of these is the safety. You know, the ESAs really got a lot of attention with regard to cardiovascular safety. So that's why these agents are really kind of on the FDA's radar with regard to evaluation. Um, this agent is approved outside of the, the U.S., and we'll probably see some ongoing safety analyses done with um, Roxadustat. Um, if we look at uh, Vidadustat next, this is also an agent where there have been studies in the non-dialysis CKD patients and as well as the dialysis CKD patients. So if we look at those particular studies, those are referred to as really the um, protect and innovate or kind of their overall uh, study titles. And in general, similar types of information with regard to non-inferiority. And then when we look at safety data, it's really more in the dialysis patients where there was non-inferiority with regard to safety. That was not necessarily demonstrated in the non-dialysis patients, though. And there was actually a little increase in the signal for, for cardiovascular um, adverse outcomes. So, or, or, and I guess if we think about a way to, to say that, it was actually that it did not meet the primary safety endpoint for non-inferiority. So if we think about uh, what's happened with this agent, it did undergo FDA review. It did not receive approval um, in general. It was thought that the failure to meet the non-inferiority in MACE and the non-dialysis pa patient population uh, was a, a concern. There was also an increased risk of thromboembolic events driven really by vascular access thrombosis in dialysis patients. And there was also some mention of the risk of drug-induced liver injury. So Again, this is a drug approved outside of the U.S., and I think we'll see more uh, to come in terms of some of the safety analysis and maybe subsequent studies. And then the third one, um, the uh, Deprodustat, is, uh, uh, has been studied as well, and there are studies called the ASCEND program. So these are studies done in early-stage CKD or the non-dialysis patients, as well as dialysis patients. And so the data from these studies, again, showing a lot of non-inferiority with regard to changes in hemoglobin, hemoglobin um, achievement of targets after you know, weeks of therapy. This is information that has now been submitted to the FDA. And so this is going to undergo um, scrutiny by the FDA. And we should be able to hear something no later than February of next year with regard to the expected uh, date that we see. So suffice it to say, Promising agents, um, some hiccups with regard to the approval process. Data is um, out there from other countries and we're seeing more and more reports of kind of the pragmatic use or real world use of these agents. And I think that's going to be interesting as more data are gathered on these to consider for approval here in the US. Okay. And then with, I guess really 
regarding the differences between them, you know, is there certain things that come down to cellular activity or receptor affinity or administration um, practices for these particular agents that set the three agents apart? Well, I guess if you look mechanistically, there are prolohydroxylases, those enzymes that break down HIF, and there's three different ones. So some of these vary in their affinity for those different hydroxylases. So the roxadustat, um, pretty much equivalent in terms of the affinity for each of those. Dupradustat, the, sec the uh, PhD, what we call them prolohydroxylase um, domains, there's a little bit of difference in, in that with regard to it only affects the two out of the three of those. And then the same thing with Medadustat, affects, it affects two out of three of those. So that kind of relates to some of the um, information that we have as well on half-life. Roxadustat has about a 12 to 13 hour half-life. So one of the interesting things about this drug and all of these drugs is they can be given orally, but Roxadustat has been studied with three times a week administration, whereas the other agents for the most part have once daily administration. Um, Dupratustat was just published though, one of the ASCEN trials actually looked at three times a week administration in the dialysis population. So even though it has a shorter half-life of about four hours, there are some studies now, or at least one study that has looked at that less frequent administration. So those are some of the, the nuances really, all oral differences in half-life. And so there may be differences um, in terms of how often uh, patients may take those. But when you compare it to ESAs, which are all available um, and administered intravenously or subcutaneously, so somewhat of a game changer in terms of having an oral therapy uh, to, to treat anemia. Yeah, I mean, I could definitely see that even from a patient acceptance besides, you know, just a healthcare acceptance. I think that could be that could be helpful for all. Um, and it may be too early right now to even kind of ask this question, but what do you see as the HIF-PH inhibitor's role in therapy, um, you know, if these agents are approved? Um, when we're talking about in the placement of guidelines. Sure, I think that's where it's kind of exciting to think what would what would the HIF uh, pH inhibitors, um, you know, how would we view them in terms of therapy? If you look at approval in other countries, you know, depending on which agent you're looking at in which country, they are approved in both non-dialysis as well as dialysis patients. So it's not, you know, concomitant with an ESA, it's really in place of an ESA. So, you know, certainly if we have a patient we've diagnosed with anemia of chronic kidney disease in the earlier stages, um, we know that they have some, you know, resistance in terms of, of being able to pr produce erythropoietin. You know, the early stage CKD patients may benefit as well as dialysis patients. So I, I think with all the information with regard to target hemoglobins and minimizing ESA use, even though there's still a lot of questions out there in terms of why ESAs are associated with those negative outcomes, you know, the HIF-PH inhibitors may be something that we're seeing now to, to be used in place of an ESA. However, some of the things I mentioned with regard to safety, I think still need to be panned out with, with each of these agents. And I think we're gonna hear more to come on that. That's good. I mean, this overview so far has been pretty enlightening to refresh just general understanding of anemia and CKD plus bringing us up to speed with these newer therapies. Um, but obviously we'd be remiss if we didn't highlight the role of a pharmacist and focus on some best practices for the management in the anemia world for CKD. As a pharmacist in the nephrology world, what 
advice of best practices do you have for all of our audience um, in, in all of the pharmacy arenas to focus on identifying patients that are most at risk for anemia um, in CKD? Well, sure. I think this is very exciting to have pharmacists involved. Um, I'll give a little plug here. I'm actually involved with an initiative, the Advancing Kidney Health Through Optimal Medication Management, where we, being a group of, of nephrology pharmacists throughout the country, are trying to, to get people more involved in the CKD community. You know, part of this relates to the fact that we're trying to get more individuals uh, diagnosed early and have interventions in place. So having pharmacists out there that know about not only chronic kidney disease, but complications such as anemia is important because they may not be in a nephrology clinic, but if you're practicing, probably like you are, Dr. Keir, in a setting where you're seeing a lot of patients with diabetes, hypertension, patients at risk, if the pharmacist knows this is someone we should be looking at their glomerular filtration rate more closely, this is someone who, oh, by the way, has anemia. Wait, maybe I should look at their GFR because maybe this is anemia of chronic kidney disease. You know, there's, there's increased recognition, and I think all team players can be involved in that. And then certainly when we know somebody has anemia of chronic kidney disease, have they had a workup for iron status? You know, that's one of the low-hanging fruit types of things um, that that folks in the healthcare environment can be involved in. Have they had their iron indices evaluated? And if they're low, can they be given iron supplementation to improve their hemoglobin, perhaps without starting an ESA just yet, or you know, maybe delaying that process? So I think pharmacists can be involved across the board in terms of the education of other healthcare providers, of patients, you know, getting treatments started early um, instead of waiting till the patient gets to dialysis. That's where we see a lot of problems happen and patients are only just then being evaluated for some of these secondary complications. So lots of opportunities there. I see it. That's great. And in addition to some of the early detection that pharmacists can do, how can pharmacists improve patient outcomes and medication adherence for those with anemia and CKD? Well, I think if you're looking at the patients in terms of adherence, um, if we think about the medications that the patient is responsible for taking on their own, we're really thinking kind of in the earlier stages of you know oral iron therapies. That is a recommendation for patients who don't have intravenous access that we may do a trial of oral iron to improve their iron status. So if you think about all the adverse effects of oral iron and all the drug interactions and all of the things that happen there, that's where a pharmacist could certainly be involved in helping the patient understand what's expected, you know, if they're going to have some GI upset, and maybe ways around that to try to get them to be more adherent. Maybe recommending different formulations of oral iron, you know, different salts that are out there um, and, and substances. So you know, the education part and just really managing the patients in terms of all the medication therapies that they receive. You know, the average number of medications for somebody um, with chronic kidney disease in the earlier stages can be anywhere from, you know, six to eight and even even greater for, for some patients. So there's a lot of opportunities there to prevent what we refer to as medication-related problems. Yeah, and you know, that's um, you know, not just talking about the medications, but just how pharmacists can be that coordinator with other healthcare um, professionals within a multidisciplinary um, team. Can you share a little bit about how um, you have either assisted or how transitions of care with pharmacists involved have allowed for um, at least better outcomes in your practices? 
Sure. So for, for me, who um, is in an inpatient environment more these days with a nephrology consult service, one of the big things that we can do is make sure that the medications are um, you know, correct in terms of if the patient's discharged, are we following up with the patient's CKD clinic or wherever they're going to make sure any changes have been uh, conveyed to them? Similarly, with the outpatient dialysis units, if we make sure that the dialysis unit knows what the patient is getting, that's a very important aspect. And vice versa, when the patient comes into the hospital, you know, I have my students and residents call the outpatient dialysis units and make sure they have an accurate medication list that includes their treatment medications with dialysis. So for any of you out there listening, think about when you've done a medication reconciliation for a dialysis patient, if you've had the opportunity to do that, do you think about calling the dialysis unit? And a, a lot of people don't. And so I think that's an important factor and that kind of helps with that transitions of care and keeping everybody, the whole team informed of, of those changes. All right. Well, thank you. Dr. Hudson, I have enjoyed discussing current and newer therapies that obviously may assist in the treatment of anemia and the chronic disease arena. Um, but tell me, you know, obviously knowing anemia is, is significant, secondary complication, that you, as you have already talked about, and that it does affect patients um, with advanced kidney disease with possibly a negative uh, quality of life or um, other health concerns. Tell us what you believe to be our most important takeaway points from our discussion today. What do you really want them, our audience, to go home with understanding? Well, I think it's important to understand just the prevalence of chronic kidney disease because I don't think it matters what kind of practice you're in. You know, you're bound to see patients at risk for chronic kidney disease who may actually be in some of the earlier stages, but no one has really done that workup for them. So I think the, the recognition, first and foremost, is important. And I know I've said that a few times, but I do think it's, it's very important. And with regard to anemia, you know, we know it happens and it's very prevalent as CKD progresses. So getting in there and having a, a full evaluation of that patient to decide, you know, do they need drug therapy at this point to prevent the negative consequences that we've been alluding to? So that, you know, early identification and workup, I think, is key. And then certainly staying tuned. You know, we have these HIF pH inhibitors that that are out there, available in other countries. There's going to be more that we hear about this um, down the road, I suspect. So just staying abreast of, of some of that new information and the updates and, and guidelines that are forthcoming, hopefully pretty soon here in the nephrology world is important. All right. Well, thank you again, Dr. Hudson and to PTCE. Um, for hosting this podcast. And I think sharing this type of information can be valuable for our practicing pharmacy personnel. Um, I hope many of you will extend your education on this topic by utilizing the anemia and chronic disease um, resource center that we have here with Pharmacy Times and other activities that you may you know, find out into the professional community. This was an extremely interesting conversation. I want to give a shout out to Joanna. You did an absolute amazing job. Thank you so much for such great detailed information. Um, really enjoyed listening to both of you. I want to give a shout out to our pharmacists out there in the trenches every day doing what you're doing. You are so needed. Your communities need you. Your hospital systems need you. Specialty Pharmacy, we are your champion. The PTCE Pharmacy Connect team is here for you. If there's anything we can do for you, please give us a shout out on social media or send us a message. You can go to pharmacytimes.org 
for all of the publications and all of the CE. If you're driving, jogging, this is a great way to absorb content for pharmacists designed by pharmacists. And with that, I thank you so much for listening to PTCE Pharmacy Connect. Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. Go to pharmacytimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.